President Biden heads to a G7 summit in Japan, but will cut his trip short in order to negotiate a solution to the debt ceiling problem. It's Wednesday, May 17th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up... I'm postponing the Australia portion of the trip and my, trip to my stop in Papua New Guinea. Uh, in order to be back for the final negotiations with congressional leaders. The president's changing plans as the debt limit talks make few signs of progress. Also this hour, the Republican-led effort in some states to limit gender-affirming care for transgender adults. And New England scientists are trying to protect endangered right whales by tracking them through their food. The take-home message here is that lots of copepods create lots of dimethyl sulfide, which makes it a very attractive place for right whales to go meet. Mostly sunny, near 60 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has expressed some optimism after meeting with congressional leaders yesterday over the debt ceiling. There's still work to do, but I made it clear to the speaker and others that we'll speak regularly over the next several days and the staff's going to continue <clears throat> meeting daily to make sure we do not default. Republican lawmakers want Biden to agree to steep spending cuts before they'll lift the debt ceiling to avoid defaulting on the national debt. Biden says he won't negotiate over the debt limit. He's leaving for Japan later today to attend the G7 summit. He has shortened that trip to return to debt ceiling talks. Before he leaves for Japan, the president will present nine medals of valor to public safety officers. Recipients include New York City police officers, including two killed in the line of duty. Others include an Ohio officer who saved a woman from drowning and a Houston officer who safely tackled a gunman in a mall where no one was injured. Voters in Kentucky and Pennsylvania held primary elections yesterday. NPR's Giles Snyder reports that in Kentucky, there will be a closely watched race for governor this fall. Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron is the state's first black major party nominee for governor. He won the Republican primary and will face a popular Democratic incumbent, Andy Bashir, in November. Together, we can make sure that Andy Bashir is a one-term governor. Let's go win this thing! The Trump-endorsed Cameron bested a Republican field that included Kelly Kraft, who was favored by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis also suffered a setback in Jacksonville, Florida. His endorsed candidate was upset, and Jacksonville is now getting a Democratic mayor. In Philadelphia, Democrat Sherelle Parker seems on track to become the city's first woman mayor. And with Heather Boyd the projected winner of a special election, Pennsylvania Democrats will keep control of the state house. Trial Snyder, NPR News. Some people will have a chance to file their tax returns online for free next year using a new system developed by the IRS. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the tax collection agency is experimenting with a direct file system that lets taxpayers sidestep commercial tax prep companies. Many other countries already offer a government-run online tax filing system. Last year, Congress gave the IRS $15 million to study the prospects of developing such a system here. Surveys show nearly three out of four taxpayers are interested in a system that would let them file electronic returns directly with the IRS at no cost. The idea has long faced opposition, though, from the $14 billion tax preparation industry. Next year's pilot program is expected to start small, and it's not yet clear which taxpayers will be eligible or how complex their returns can be. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel stressed the direct filing will be optional. Those who prefer to use commercial software or an accountant to file their taxes can continue to do so. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. 
This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins, plans to resign by the end of this week. As WBUR's Walter Rothman reports, Rollins has been the subject of multiple ethics investigations since taking office a little more than a year ago. The investigations stem from a Democratic political fundraiser Rollins attended last summer with First Lady Jill Biden in Andover. They've reportedly since widened to include the use of her personal phone for business purposes, according to unnamed sources familiar with the investigation who spoke to the Associated Press. Rollins' attorney says she's choosing to resign now because her presence has become a distraction. She said she's, quote, optimistic that the important work she started will continue. Rollins is the first black woman to serve as U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. In her previous role as Suffolk District Attorney, she was a prominent figure in pushing criminal justice changes, including not prosecuting some low-level crimes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The Boston City Council today will consider new anti-bullying measures for both counselors and staff. The new policy extends to both in-person and online bullying and harassment. It also outlines steps employees can take to report issues and instances of bullying behavior. There's a new group looking at the future of the state's agriculture industry. The state-run commission plans to study the needs of modern agriculture in the state, including climate resiliency, workforce development, and education. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll opened yesterday's first meeting of the commission. We think it's critical for our small business. It's obviously critical for our farmers. It's key to our climate goals and resiliency. And I see a really key piece that we're not leveraging around culture, our heritage, and our tourism opportunities. The group hopes to come up with recommendations and legislation that will support agriculture in the state. New restrictions are in effect for fishing haddock in the Gulf of Maine. Federal officials have cut quotas for catching haddock by more than 80 percent. They say the species has been overfished. Al Catoni heads Gloucester's Fisheries Commission. He says the fishery is in a state of emergency. The Gulf of Maine ground fishery is in a, is in a tough spot right now. And I could just give you, give you an indication of you know, what it's like. I haven't fished all month because I was afraid, afraid of catching haddock. The new quotas are a response to a recent assessment that showed an unexpected drop in the haddock population, but many fishermen in the area say they're seeing plenty of the fish in the water. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Tonight at the Garden, it's Game 1 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals between the Celtics and the Miami Heat. Adam Frenier has a preview. The Celtics came back from a three-games-to-two series deficit against Philadelphia to move on to the conference finals. They managed to win Game 6 on the road before Jason Tatum scored 51 points in a decisive Game 7. This will be a rematch for Boston and Miami. The two teams met in the same round of the playoffs last year, with the Celtics winning in seven games. During the regular season, the team split four games against each other. The winner of this series will take on either the Los Angeles Lakers or the Denver Nuggets in the NBA Finals. The first two games of the Celtics and Heat series will take place in Boston. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. 
The Red Sox beat the Seattle Mariners 9-4 last night at Fenway. The Sox and Mariners will wrap up their three-game series tonight. A cloudy start today, but becoming sunny, it'll be near 60, clear overnight and cold. It'll be in the 20s and 30s, sunny tomorrow and in the lower 60s. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston at 708. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. President Biden heads to Japan today for the G7 summit. Now, at first, he was supposed to go from there to other meetings in Asia, but with no deal in sight with House Republicans over the impending debt ceiling, Biden switched up his itinerary. However, I'm cutting my trip short. I'm postponing the Australia portion of the trip and my trip to my stop in Papua New Guinea uh, in order to be back for the final negotiations with congressional leaders. NPR's Scott Detrow is in Hiroshima, Japan, awaiting Biden's arrival and joins us now. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Okay, so let's start with what's not happening. What was Biden going to be doing in Australia and Papua New Guinea? Australia was going to be a meeting what's called the Quad. That's the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India. It's a group of like-minded democracies in the region that's all about containing China. So Biden and the other leaders were going to be meeting at the Sydney Opera House. Sounds really picturesque, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's not going to happen. But Biden will see these other leaders at the G7 and will likely talk to them there. And Papua New Guinea, what was that intended? How was that intended to fit into Biden's travels? Yeah, that was supposed to be an effort to extend U.S. friendship and economic support to Pacific Island nations like Papua New Guinea. China has been aggressively courting Pacific Island nations in recent years, delivering a ton of economic assistance, in some cases, military assistance and agreements. And that has led the U.S. and its allies like Australia to really scramble to also make and keep friends in places like Papua New Guinea. I, I talked to Patricia Kim about this. She's a China expert at the Brookings Institution. And she says all of this maneuvering is happening because both China and the U.S. see the South Pacific as a key strategic area. They both want to have influence and also have the ability to move around military assets and ships as needed. And to do this, we need to have a good relationship with island states in the region to be able to patrol the waterways, to be able to dock, refuel, and restock naval vessels. And in this big picture, Papua New Guinea is a really interesting country because it's been developing increasingly close economic ties with China. And as those have tightened, uh, Papua New Guinea withdrew ties to Taiwan. Uh, So suddenly you had this scramble from Australia and the U.S. to keep pace. And this canceled trip is really a setback to that effort. This had been major news in Papua New Guinea, even though Biden was only going to spend about three hours there. The country had declared the day of the visit a national holiday, and now it's been canceled. Oh, wow. That's tough. Now, Biden is still going to Japan, though, where you are. What's the focus going to be at the G7? It's going to be a long list. Japan's ambassador to the U.S., uh, Koji Tomita, has worked at several of these G7 summits, and he joked at a recent press conference that the final statements that leaders issue always grows and grows and grows and grows. We officials always start with the ambition that we will produce something short and punchy, but uh, our ambition is always defeated somehow. You know, we end up producing, uh, you know, 20-page plus documents. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) A little too real as a journalist, huh? Right. (laughs) 
But, um, you know, Japan's the host country here. And its leaders have talked a lot about wanting to make sure that the G7 focuses on helping less wealthy countries. So Japan will be pushing for firm commitments on food security and infrastructure funding. But front and center, you're going to be hearing a lot of talk about the rules-based international order, which is foreign policy speak for countering aggressive actions by Russia and China. So once again, this will be a meeting where the war in Ukraine will be a top focus. You'll see a push from the U.S. to really end the summit with more steps to further isolate Russia from the rest of the world economy. And Biden will also be working to try and continue getting other nations on board to have countering China as a top issue in their minds. White House correspondent Scott Detrow in Hiroshima, Japan. Scott, I hope you get some time to enjoy the food and the country in between work. Thanks for your reporting. I hope so, too. Thank you. About one out of every four Americans gets their health care coverage through Medicaid. The federal program that mainly serves people with lower incomes or disabilities has become pivotal to negotiations over the debt ceiling. Republicans want to make more people work to qualify. Many Democrats say that's a non-starter. Let's ask Democratic Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington State about this. Uh, Congresswoman, President Biden says uh, making it harder for anyone to get Medicaid is off the table. Is that something you agree with? Well, absolutely. absolutely. We agree that, that work requirements do not have any good effect. We've actually found that when they've been instituted, uh, particularly uh, after the drastic social safety net cuts of 1996, five years later, there was no difference in employment rates among those recipients, and they tend to hurt the very people they're intended to serve. States, um, some states try to make their own rules when it comes to Medicaid. Arkansas has attempted to tie uh, benefits to work requirements. Uh, A recent referendum in Wisconsin supported that idea. Should states be able to make their own rules on Medicaid? You know, I really don't think that they should. I think we should try to control this from the federal level because what we see is that the cuts to Medicaid, the states that don't choose to Uh, take on Medicaid recipients or choose to institute these kinds of heavy burdens are the ones that are suffering the most for the people that need it the most. So I think we should have consistent Medicaid requirements across the country. They should be dictated by the federal government. And, um, you know, I think ultimately we want to make sure we're helping people, not hurting the very people that need it the most. Even if states pick up a part of the cost, it's a jointly funded program. Well, that's the problem. I think because we've made it a jointly funded program, unlike Medicare, states do feel like they have the ability to uh, put in their own rules. I think over time, and obviously this isn't something we can accomplish right away, but I think that is one of the flaws of this very important Medicaid program is we give states too much control over helping the neediest people in their states. If Republicans are successful and more requirements for work are tied to benefits such as Medicaid or SNAP, uh, that's the program that provides aid for groceries, how would it affect uh, states like yours, Washington? Well, Washington state, you know, we are a democratically controlled state, and so we we have much fewer burdens in place. But I have to say, this cannot be a negotiating point on the table. I do not think that Republicans can win on this. And some Republicans themselves have said that this doesn't actually do anything to cut the deficit. So let's be clear that, you know, the amount of money that would be saved is extremely little, if anything. These work requirements require huge administrative burden. Um, I've talked to the people who administer these programs, and they say they have to spend a lot of money just to have people go through and determine whether or not somebody is eligible, whether or not uh, the work requirement actually 
fits the condition. A lot of people who are on these programs are cycling in and out of different jobs. They're often low-wage workers. They often don't have the stability that a lot of others may have. And so work requirements are just an administrative burden that costs a lot of money and, again, do not help in terms of getting more people back into employment. Congresswoman, you used to be on the House Budget Committee. Do any arguments at all from the GOP about lowering spending hold water for you? Any, any at all? Well, I think the key thing here is we have to think about the difference between debt and deficit. If Republicans want to talk about the deficit, we have shown through the last two years of the Biden administration and the bills that we've passed that we can reduce the deficit by raising revenue. And that is the thing that is consistently very hypocritical about the Republican position on this, because they don't want to raise revenue. In fact, they often ensure that their tax cuts go to the wealthiest and don't actually bring in money, whereas Democrats are willing to talk about the fact that the deficit can be reduced by increasing revenues. And I think that's a very important thing at the end of the day. Just a few seconds left, Congresswoman. What's going to have to happen to make this deal happen? We've got to have a clean debt ceiling. That is the first thing. We've got to raise the debt ceiling in a clean way. Democrats have a discharge petition to do this. Um, I think we are going to have to put everything on the table, including potentially using the 14th Amendment, because Republicans cannot be rewarded for hostage-taking, trying to get extreme ideas in that they couldn't get in even in the budget negotiations that happen every year. That's Democratic Representative Pramila Jayapal. Thank you very much. Thank you. One of the world's oldest Hebrew Bibles goes up for auction today. It's expected to command bids of, well, biblical proportions, tens of millions of dollars. Marissa Mazria Katz has the story. In the middle of a windowless room in Sotheby's Upper East Side auction house, crowds swarm a 26-pound book that looks straight out of an old master's painting with crinkled yellowed parchment covered in thick black Hebrew script. There may have been earlier books, Hebrew books, but we don't have them. This in front of you is the earliest, most complete, accurate, stable text of the Hebrew Bible. That's Sharon Lieberman-Mintz. She's a senior Judaica specialist at Sotheby's, who is overseeing the sale of the Codex Sassoon. Codex is what you call an ancient manuscript, and Sassoon for the name of its most famous owner, collector David Solomon Sassoon. This was the crown jewel in his collection. The origins of the book are a bit murky. The first time it was sold was around 1000 AD. Roughly 200 years later, someone wrote a dedication inside to a synagogue in Syria. But then, for nearly 600 years, there was no record of its whereabouts, until Sassoon got his hands on it in the 1920s. He was a member of one of the wealthiest merchant families of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and was also one of the greatest collectors of Hebrew manuscripts. Claudia Nassen, a curator of a show about the Sassoon family at New York's Jewish Museum, says he saw the Codex as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, if, you know, as soon as he learned that this was available, he pursued it earnestly. Sotheby's relied on carbon dating plus scholarly research to authenticate the book. Sassoon paid 350 British pounds for it, around $22,000 today, which is also about $29 million below Sotheby's current asking price. The high price could mean it ends up back in a private collection. I would prefer if it could go to an institution in Israel or even in the States. 
That's Professor Yosef Ofer of Barilan University's Bible Department. I hope that uh, wherever it will be, it, it will be known. Everyone will know where the manuscript is, and the scholars will be able to get permission to go on and uh, to see it. The auction for Codex Sassoon takes place later today. For NPR News, this is Marissa Masria Katz. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in three minutes on Morning Edition, we hear about a palm tree in Mexico City that's become a memorial for the families of missing loved ones lost to cartel violence. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station, and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. Mostly sunny today with a high near 60. We'll have some gusty winds. Tonight, clear skies and a low around 38. It may be even colder outside Boston. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 62. Temperatures will rise up back to near 70 on Friday. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest, Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. There's a roundabout in the middle of a prominent boulevard in Mexico City. It used to be called Glorieta de la Palma, the roundabout of the palm. That's because a majestic palm tree stood there for more than a century. However, it died last year. But that's when families of missing Mexicans decided to occupy the space with pictures of their loved ones. A tussle ensued full of symbolism and mysticism. Here's NPR's Ader Peralta. I meet Jorge Verasi Gonzalez at a cafe not far from the traffic circle. His brother and his nephew disappeared in January of 2009. So he says when he heard that the palm had died, it felt like an opportunity. The government constantly wants to hide their faces, so we wanted a reminder in the most important street in the country. Within days, families hung a tarp with about 300 pictures of their missing relatives. But by the next morning, they were all gone. The families, he said, took it as yet another disappearance. It was also a symbolic act. 
puesto que utilizaron los mismos métodos que los grupos criminales. Because they used the same tactics that the criminals use to disappear our families. It was the same way his brother and nephew went missing. Verastegui says men wearing hoods took them at night. Neighbors saw it. They called the family. The family called the police. La policía nunca salió a buscarlos. But the police never bothered to search for them. A police chief, he says, told them a cartel beat them up, but that they were alive. Verastegui says those words, beat up but alive, have haunted him for 14 years. Part of him accepts that they're dead. También siempre está la esperanza. But then there's always that hope. That uncertainty, he says, becomes a form of torture. But it's also why they can't give up on this traffic circle. Ellos quitan las fotos y nosotros vamos y las colocamos. Ellos they take down the pictures and we put them back up. They erect barriers and we put the pictures over the barriers. For a year now, it's been a cat and mouse game with the government. The palm dies, the families put up pictures, the government takes them down. The circle becomes known as the roundabout of the disappeared. The government plants a new tree, a huge Montezuma cypress. The families call it the guardian of the disappeared. But within weeks, its leaves fall. As Verastegui puts it, the branches become brittle. They look ashen. Ante lo evidente que era ya un árbol que muy seguramente estaba muerto. Despite the clear evidence that this tree was likely dead, they kept saying it was alive, that it was just struggling to adapt. And then one day, just like their missing loved ones, just like their pictures, the new tree disappears. The government said the tree was transported to a nursery south of the city. They insisted it was alive, but every time we asked to see it, we're rebuffed. The following Sunday, I head to the traffic circle. A huge parade of indigenous activists march across the boulevard. Some family members gather with photos and glue. Officially, more than 100,000 Mexicans have been reported missing. Most of them went missing during the war on drugs. Aurea Rubia Reyes' brother disappeared when he was leaving work back in 2019. The government, she says, thinks they can cover the sun with a finger. She says that's why every time the government tears down her brother's picture, she comes and puts it back up. It's like we're screaming that they don't help us, they don't back us. These days, the traffic circle is just a hole in the ground. The government has placed eight-foot-high metal barriers all around it. The families gather in front of the barriers, and as they read the names of their missing loved ones, they paste oversized black and white pictures on the metal barricades. The city buzzes around them, glass high-rises, cyclists, runners, families enjoying their Sunday. It's almost too much for Rosicela Velasco Acosta. Her son went missing a year ago. Por favor, sociedad, despierta, despierta, tu Everyone, please wake up. You have a family. This comes from a mother who is heartbroken, who is the walking dead. Please. Por favor, yo busco a mi hijo. Por favor, como lo quieran entregar, pero entreguenmelo. Necesito saber dónde está. Dónde está mi hijo. Vivo, muerto, como quiera, pero ya entreguenmelo, por favor. Please. I'm looking for my son. I want him dead or alive. 
just give him to me. She cries, and yet no one stops to listen. After a month of asking, the government's environmental agency says we can come to see the Montezuma cypress at a nursery called Nesawal Coyotl. But when we get there, the two arborists assigned to talk to us tell us that we don't have permission to see the tree. We still talk. Right now, says Roberto Quintero, they are still investigating what killed the 100-year-old palm that used to be at the traffic circle. The palm was afflicted with lethal yellowing and pink rot. One of those likely killed it. It's a fascinating scientific discussion, but I stopped them and asked plainly, What about the Montezuma cypress that replaced the palm? What happened to that tree? <laughs> His colleague Isidro Recia says the tree had a tough go of it. Just as it had adapted to its new home, he says, a car crashed into it and damaged about half of the roots. It's likely that the tree's interior tissue was also damaged. The tree was replanted here at this nursery. It's recovering, he says. It's alive. But it won't ever have the structure it had before. At best, a branch might sprout from the roots. Beat up, but alive. We leave without ever seeing the tree, with hope that it's alive, but with a feeling that it might be dead. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. This is NPR News. Welcome to Wednesday. You're with WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, there are efforts by Republicans in several states to limit gender-affirming care for adults by banning insurance coverage and imposing other strict regulations. It's 729. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering tonight at City Space for a panel discussion on how to approach anxiety productively. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. There's still no agreement to raise the debt ceiling. President Biden met with congressional leaders at the White House yesterday for about an hour. Afterwards, the White House announced the president will cut short his upcoming overseas trip to deal with the issue. Biden leaves today for a G7 summit in Japan. He's canceling stops in Australia and Papua New Guinea to return to the U.S. on Sunday. NPR's Deirdre Walsh says the president and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy remain at odds in a number of areas. There's still really a lot of major issues they haven't decided, like how long to lift the debt ceiling. Republicans want to raise it sometime into next year. Democrats want to do it way past the 2024 election. And President Biden noted Republicans are still opposed to any kinds of tax increases in this deal, even though they're still pushing for these spending cuts. The president and McCarthy have appointed new negotiators to work out the details of an agreement to raise the debt limit. The former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank describes the speed of the bank's recent collapse this way. 
Rumors and misconceptions quickly spread online, culminating on March 9th with the first ever social media bank run, leading to $42 billion in deposits being withdrawn from SVB in 10 hours. Gregory Becker was testifying to the Senate Banking Committee yesterday. He appears before a House committee today. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Former Vice President Mike Pence met with Republican voters in New Hampshire last night. It's the latest sign he's moving closer to running for president. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports Pence attacked the Biden administration and trumpeted conservative economic policies. Pence casts himself as a traditional conservative who will work hard to attract evangelical voters. But a presidential campaign would be a long shot, pitting him against his former boss, Donald Trump. At an event held at a free trade think tank in Concord, Pence advocated returning to Trump's policies, including cutting taxes and regulations, and blamed the current president for a sour economy. I mean, the truth is, for millions of American families, the failed policies of the Biden administration have caused the American dream to slip further and further out of reach. Pence's New Hampshire visit, home to the first Republican presidential primary, comes after a group of GOP operatives launched a super PAC to support an expected presidential run. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks in Concord, New Hampshire. Secretary of State Bill Galvin is warning that the Boston City Council must approve new voting districts quickly or else this year's elections could be delayed. The council is weighing three different maps. A federal judge threw out the previously approved one earlier this month. The council has until the end of this month to approve a new map. Otherwise, the dates for September's preliminary elections may need to be pushed back. Teachers in Holliston are calling on the town's school committee to improve their working conditions. The teachers' union overwhelmingly voted no confidence in the school superintendent. The group says she fails to create a supportive work environment and has not adequately dealt with a wave of staff departures. There's been no response yet from the superintendent. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The playoff series between the Celtics and Miami Heat tips off tonight at the Garden. The Red Sox snapped their four-game losing streak last night. They beat the Seattle Mariners 9-4 at Fenway. The two teams will wrap up their series tonight. Mostly clear skies today and much cooler with a high only around 60. Tonight it may dip into the 30s. Tomorrow a high in the low 60s and sunny. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston at 733. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from EasyCater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Ukraine has been talking for weeks about a spring counteroffensive, and there are signs that it may have already started. Yeah, Ukrainian forces claim they've made advances in the battle for Bakhmut, a city in the east that Russia has been trying to capture for more than 10 months. This comes as Russia is launching more missiles at Ukraine as it attempts to degrade Ukrainian defenses. 
Joining us to discuss the recent developments is NPR's Ukraine correspondent, Joanna Kakissis, who is in the central city of Dnipro. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Leila. So let's start with Bakhmut. For weeks now, we've heard Russian forces control most of the city. Has anything changed? So inside the city, Leila, the situation is pretty much the same. The Russians still control most of it. Uh, the fighting continues. Lots of dead soldiers on both sides with the city in absolute ruins. But outside Bakhmut, Ukraine says their soldiers are actually gaining. Uh, Ukraine's Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Maliar says Ukrainian troops have recently taken back 7.5 square miles of land just outside the city. So, Joanna, does this mean that the counteroffensive may be starting then? So some military analysts, especially here, saying as much. But the truth is, we don't know. Uh, President Zelensky has said that the counteroffensive will start soon. But Ukraine still needs more weapons from the West. Uh, Ukrainians are very eager for this counteroffensive to start. We saw that in Kherson, where we just spent a few days reporting. Ukrainian forces liberated the city of Kherson in November. But Russian forces are less than a mile away on the other side of the river. And they attack the city nearly every day. We were there shortly after 26 people died in missile attacks, including an attack at a supermarket where we shop when we're in town. Um, we spoke to special forces soldiers in Herson who say, you know, we've been laying the groundwork for counteroffensive for months, and they say that they're ready. And what about the situation for Russian forces? Are they making any progress? So with the exception of Bakhmut, they've made very little progress on the ground. But Russia has been attacking Ukraine with a lot of missiles in the past few days. On Monday night, the Russians launched a barrage of missiles and drones that included six hypersonic missiles, which Russia claims are almost impossible to shoot down. Yet Ukraine says its air defenses, which include Western weapons, that these air defenses got them all. And now the West is promising more weapons uh, after Zelensky's whirlwind trip to European capitals in the past week. Um, that trip might actually give Ukraine the advanced F-16 fighter jets that Zelensky has long sought. So before I let you go, I also wanted to ask about the deal mm -hmm. that's been allowing Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea to avoid a global food crisis. Where does that stand right now? Yeah, uh, there's a chance, Leila, that that deal is going to collapse. Mm. Uh, Russia has been saying for months that it doesn't like the deal, that it has hidden sanctions on its own agricultural products. Um, this deal was brokered last year by the UN and Turkey to help get Ukrainian grain, which helps feed the world out of a war zone. And the last ship before this deal expires is expected to leave Ukraine today. NPR's Ukraine correspondent Joanna Kakissis reporting in Dnipro on the possible start of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Thank you for your reporting. You're welcome. Across the country, Republican lawmakers have passed a record number of bills this year targeting the rights of transgender people. The argument in favor of those measures is often that they're intended to protect kids. But as WFSU's Regan McCarthy reports, limitations for adults frequently follow close behind. This month, Caleb Hobson Garcia graduated with a degree in environmental science. Since he was a kid, he's loved the environment, but he hasn't always wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to be a firefighter and an astronaut and a paleontologist. One thing Hobson Garcia, who's transgender, has always wanted to be is a boy. I only ever felt connection to the idea of being a boy. Hobson Garcia started hormone therapy at 14. Now he's 21. He won't be impacted by Florida's bans on gender-affirming care for kids, but Republicans in several states are pushing limits on care for adults, too. 
Florida lawmakers just passed a bill that says only physicians can provide gender-affirming medical care. The bill also prohibits public dollars from covering its costs. State health insurance plans and Medicaid can't provide coverage. Hobson Garcia injects himself with testosterone every two weeks. Without insurance, he estimates a month's supply would cost him up to $160. If he couldn't afford it... I could start menstruating regularly again. That is not something that I've done since I started Blockers. And that is something that would be incredibly dysphoric for myself, and I'm sure for the thousands of other trans people that exist in the state of Florida. Florida's law follows bans that were in place through administrative rules. Simone Chris is a lawyer with the Southern Legal Council. She's challenging some of these bans. Like with everything else that these folks try to do to harm LGBTQ people, it's an easier lift and it's easier to swallow when it's, oh, we're protecting children. And Chris says it's long been that way. But restrictions have often significantly impacted adults, too. The justification for not allowing same-sex marriage was it's harmful to children. And the justification for the drag bans is it's harmful to children. And the the justification for everything that's happening, sports bans, it it hurts cis girls, bathroom bans, it hurts children. That's how Governor Ron DeSantis talks about bills lawmakers passed in the recent legislative session. The legislature enacted historic protections for children. DeSantis is widely expected to announce a 2024 presidential run. You should not be doing puberty blockers. That is wrong, and we're glad that we put a stop to that in the state of Florida. Critics say the slate of anti-LGBTQ plus bills passed in Florida this year are part of his plan to rally voters ahead of the Republican primary. Nationwide, 46% of people support barring gender-affirming care for kids, according to a survey published last year by Pew Research Center. 60% believe a person's gender cannot differ from their sex assigned at birth. Transitioning and finding gender euphoria to someone who hasn't experienced that is, what is something in your life that you do to have people look at you that brings you joy? and makes you think, yes, this is how I want people to look at me. Hobson Garcia says he can see why it might be hard for someone who doesn't know a transgender person to understand how it feels. It can be something like, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, and I need people to know that. But it's a part of your identity that is so wholly you and brings you so much joy that you can't imagine not having that be a part of yourself. Hobson Garcia is again rethinking his career path. Instead of looking for jobs as a scientist, he's looking for jobs in grassroots organizing and advocacy. He wants to fight for transgender rights. Meanwhile, Florida Republicans are already making plans for more rules that would impact transgender people of any age. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Tallahassee. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up at 7.45 on Morning Edition, we learn how scientists racing to protect right whales are tackling one major challenge to their safety. Much cooler today. Temperatures will only rise to around 60, and it'll be mostly sunny. Tonight, it'll fall into the 30s. Tomorrow, still in the low 60s and sunny. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 7.42. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event. Window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. A new market celebrating the flavors of the African diaspora opens in Nubian Square today. Nubian Markets will have a market, cafe, halal butchery, and community gathering space. Ismail Samad is a co-founder of the market. He says it's a place to celebrate differences and commonalities through food. And we began to think about a way to put something that's owned by us for us. Uh, when you're talking about black and brown folks, just creating a culture that can be celebrated in the same way that markets and, and food offerings in other communities are celebrated that people flock to. So we wanted to create something in that same vein. The market will also have a grocery store that highlights products from small BIPOC-owned businesses. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. In a way, North Atlantic right whales are swimming against time to avoid extinction. After more than a century of being hunted for oil, the remaining whales now face injuries caused by fishing lines and boat strikes. Scientists trying to help them survive face a major hurdle. They can't predict where the whales will travel quickly enough to ensure their safety. WBUR's Paula Mora tells us more about one effort to figure that out. That's from a video taken by a right whale researcher in Cape Cod Bay. He had a special permit to get really close in a small inflatable boat. A right whale calf spouts right next to them. Hunting North Atlantic right whales has been banned since 1935, but the population has not fully recovered. And in 2010, the numbers began declining. Researchers estimate there are only 340 right whales left and 70 breeding females. Right whales are hard to track with current technology, and researchers say tracking them and understanding their habits is critical to figuring out how to protect them. There's been a lot of things that have been looked at to try to predict right whale movements and aggregations. That's Dave Wiley with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Here in Cape Cod Bay, there's a unique opportunity to study their feeding habits. The right whales come in in large numbers at predictable times, and they come relatively close to the shore. So right whales are looking for places with a lot of food. So to track the whales, he and other scientists are following the food. Right whales eat copepods, a tiny zooplankton. And those zooplankton eat plant matter that releases a gas called dimethyl sulfite, or DMS. The take-home message here is that lots of copepods create lots of dimethyl sulfide, which makes it a very attractive place for right whales to go and eat. Wiley and other researchers want to know the levels of DMS where the whales gather. So they sample water around the whales while they are feeding to map DMS concentrations. Wiley is working with Dan Zitterbart from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. 
if we can uh, with confidence say more DMS equals more whale and that starts at a certain DMS threshold, we can use this to protect right whales with management decisions. Then the idea is to compare these measurements to satellite imagery. Ultimately, they want to be able to use those images to identify levels of DMS known to be favorable to whales. He predicts the research can be finished in two or three years. Wiley from NOAA says that with the data, they could manage human activity. So that can be slowing boats down. That can be rooting them around those areas. That can be um, removing fishing gear from those areas. Scientists hope this work will help them predict where right whales will go, but it might be more complicated than that. Charles Mayo with the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown has sampled right whale food for 40 years. He says researchers still need to find out if whales rely mainly on DMS to find food. And even if they do, scientists don't know which high DMS area the whales will choose. There may not be concentrations of whales, even if it all works, because they may be 100 miles over there in an even better spot. He says the ocean is a complex environment, and the whales are responding to multiple factors to search for food. We're a ways away from being able to coalesce all that, but it's the kind of work that has to be done because we need to know where the whales are. To know where they are is even more important due to climate change. Their food source is migrating and the whales are moving too. Right whales are well protected in Massachusetts, but it's a challenge to expand regulations all over the North Atlantic Ocean without knowing more about their movements. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. It's a Wednesday on WBUR. Coming up in just a couple of minutes on Morning Edition, author Kwame Alexander talks about his intimate new memoir that explores his own relationships. And at 810, we delve into the threat posed by artificial intelligence to national security. It's, eight, it's 749. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five. And liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR.
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins plans to resign this week following a months-long ethics investigation by the Department of Justice. President Joe Biden is cutting short his trip to Japan for the G7 summit amid ongoing debt ceiling negotiations. And access to the abortion pill Mifepristone is again at stake as a federal court prepares to hear arguments today about the medication. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering, from scratch meals that combine New England ingredients with Caribbean and Southern flavors. FreshFoodGeneration.com. Upper 50s today. It'll also be mostly sunny and windy. Tonight, skies stay clear and it'll be in the 30s. Tomorrow, low 60s and sunny. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. Kwame Alexander is a familiar name here on Morning Edition. He's had many wonderful visits with our friend Rachel Martin, creating and sharing community crowdsourced poems, talking about his poetry and award-winning young adult novels. But now he's got something new for us. It's a memoir of sorts. We'll ask him to explain why I said that. It's called Why Fathers Cry at Night, and he is with us now to tell us more about it. Welcome back. Hey, it's good to be here, Michelle. So why the memoir now? I mean, you could argue that a lot of poetry, especially your very personal work, uh, is in some ways memoir. But this more directly describes your life story. What made you want to? It started off as a book of love poems that I wanted to write that would hopefully have some impact on readers, make them feel good, make them think about their love lives. And as I wrote it, I realized that I was telling a story. The, the poems were chron- chronological. And then I began to write prose pieces to support the poetry pieces. And then I began to think about the recipes that my mother and my grandmother used in their kitchens that were, you know, um, that, that were fueling some of these prose pieces. And so I began to in- include recipes. And before I knew it, it was this, this book became sort of a mirror of what parenting is. And, um, you know, from a philosophical or just from a really intimate personal perspective, I realized that I was in sort of a crisis, and this was around 2017. My mother had passed. My marriage was falling apart. My oldest daughter, I have two kids, my oldest daughter had stopped speaking with us. And at the same time, Michelle, I'm winning all these awards for Mm -hmm. my books but I wasn't happy, Hmm. and I didn't know what to do about it. And so that's where the writing started. So this is where we get to the pain parts. There are some hilarious parts in this book, but there are the pain parts, and the pain parts are ones that I think will be familiar to anybody who has relationships with anyone. And this is where I'm going to ask you to read, if you read one of the poems, it's Without You. Without you, I am lost, as in isolated, unfinished, broken off, shipwrecked on the shore of solitude, ankle-deep in possibility. I have read the dictionary twice, and still there are no words to fill my blank spaces, to punctuate the way I feel when your smile dances across the stucco walls of my memory. Perhaps I will open a thesaurus now and find a little piece of hope or something similar. 
Tell me about it. I think this is one of those experiences that could apply to so many relationships that get ruptured. Could be a love, could be a friend. Yeah, I think it's all of the above. You've been married for 23 years, and now your marriage is over. You don't stop thinking about the person. Your daughter, your firstborn child, you all have an argument, and it explodes into something you could never have imagined a not speaking with each other for years. Like, how does that happen? Those crises, there's a longing, there's a missing, and not to even mention you know, your mother passing away. I'm dealing with all this stuff at the same time, and I don't know how to handle it. I'm unprepared for that kind of loss. You know, this is something the therapist will tell you to do. You know, journal, write it down, put it in a drawer someplace until you're ready to deal with those big feelings. A couple questions occur to me. This is other people's stories too, but you're the one who gets to tell it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's fair? My father called me after he read the book, Michelle, and he said, tell your publisher I read your little memoir and I will be suing you for slander. Oh boy, ouch. (laughs) And then in the next moment he's like, so how you been? I think it's fair for me to share what I have been going through mm-hmm. and on this canvas of of life that is that has been full of woe and wonder and and tragedy and triumph. This is me painting my picture. I think that's I think that's very fair. Now that you have you know laid your soul bare in this way. I I would I could argue I said uh, having read your earlier works especially your poetry that that you have done so for for some time you've been very vulnerable and opened your heart up but this is different in the sense that there's no there's no hiding behind the metaphors <laughs> you know right so how does that feel now that you've done so would, especially can I may I say as yeah. an African American man yeah. for whom that kind of vulnerability is not always welcome or safe oh yeah, it's it's we're not taught that. You know, I have two really good friends, Marshall and Mike, who I've known for for 30 years. And I've been really busy with my career. You know, that's been my excuse why I haven't been able to hang and and spend time and do the things that the fellas do. So, I planned a trip just the three of us, and it was wonderful and we're sitting at dinner and I'm like, "Fellas, have I had a wall up emotionally during our friendship? Have I been have I been vulnerable? Have I shared with y'all like I'm just in the moment, right? Cuz I'm fe- I'm trying to learn and and do the work that I write about in this book and and they both look at me and laugh at the same time and they say, "Dude, you've always been surface." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> and so I think you're right that I've hidden behind the metaphor. I've 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 avoided being able to really be as forthcoming and honest and authentic with who I am as a man, as a black man. And how do I feel now? I feel like this book has forced me to do that. And that's hard. And yeah, I've woken up with panic attacks and called my editor and said, pull the book. But ultimately, I feel like it was necessary and I'm going to be better. 
Kwame Alexander is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 38 books. He is the showrunner and executive producer of the TV series based on his award-winning novel, The Crossover. And his latest book that we've been talking about is Why Fathers Cry at Night. Kwame Alexander, thank you so much for talking with us about this very precious work. Thank you for listening and letting me talk about it. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Layla Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, closes May 29th. More at PEM.org. And BioNova Scientific a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app, or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden is cutting his Asia trip short to meet with congressional leaders on the debt limit with a possible default as little as 15 days away. It's Wednesday, May 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the European Union is moving forward with the world's first carbon tax on imports. Rewarding green commodities with a lower import tariff and sending a demand signal to the foreign market to do more of a good thing. Also this hour, Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins is resigning amid a months-long ethics investigation by the Department of Justice. And... She has more friends, she's doing better in school, and she's really expressing herself and her individuality a lot more. Some parents of children who are obese are taking advantage of new treatment options and reporting big improvements in their kids' lives. Red Sox win, sunny, and around 60 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden says he's confident that lawmakers will be able to resolve the standoff over the terms for raising the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the president, who is set to travel to Japan today, says he will be in close contact with congressional leaders. President Biden acknowledged that there's still a lot of work to do, but says the two sides appear to be united on one front. Defaulting on the debt is simply not an option. Our economy would fall into recession. It would devastate retirement accounts, increase borrowing costs. And according to Moody's, nearly 8 million Americans would lose their jobs and their international reputation would be damaged in the extreme if we were to let that happen. Biden says he plans to meet with congressional leaders when he returns from his trip to Japan, where he'll attend the G7 summit. The White House on Tuesday confirmed that Biden will cut short his trip to the Indo-Pacific region to focus on resolving the debt ceiling dispute. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A federal lawsuit challenging the legality of the drug Mifepristone is back in a federal court today. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports the drug is used for abortions and miscarriage management. 
Last month, a federal judge at a district court in Texas blocked the FDA's approval of mifepristone, but the Supreme Court stepped in and preserved access for now. Eric Baptist is an attorney with the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is challenging the FDA's approval process for mifepristone. We will urge the court to uphold everything that the district court held, that the approval in 2000 for mifepristone was unlawful for multiple reasons. Those reasons have to do with the procedures the FDA followed and safety issues, he says. The Justice Department is defending mifepristone and the FDA's process with support from the drug maker and reproductive rights advocates. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Russia continues to attack Ukraine with powerful missiles and drones. Ukraine continues to fend off the attacks with Western-supplied defense systems. Both Russia and Ukraine have been cooperating with an international grain agreement. It allows Ukrainian grain and Russian agricultural products to be shipped through the Black Sea. That's partially a war zone. NPR's Joanna Kakissa says that grain agreement is poised to expire. Russia has been saying for months that it doesn't like the deal, that it has hidden sanctions on its own agricultural products. Um, This deal was brokered last year by the U.N. and Turkey to help get Ukrainian grain, which helps feed the world out of a war zone. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reporting. Meanwhile, leaders are meeting in Iceland today for the rarely convened Council of Europe. European officials are deciding what damages Russia should pay to compensate victims of its invasion of Ukraine. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins plans to resign this week. That follows a months-long ethics investigation related to her attendance at a political fundraiser in Andover last summer. First Lady Jill Biden was also there. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman explains, there's still a lot of open questions surrounding the investigation and what it revealed. There's also a separate investigation by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel into potential Hatch Act violations that could come out as soon as this morning. Rollins' attorney says she'll be ready to talk after she resigns and the dust settles. As for the office, there may be an interim role here. Biden will need to appoint a new U.S. attorney, which would need Senate approval and would arrive heading into a presidential election. Rollins is the first black woman to serve as the state's top federal prosecutor. A red flag warning just went into effect for the entire state except for the Cape and Islands. That means there's a high risk for wildfires and brush fires that could spread quickly. WBUR's Dave Faniff reports that's because of the dry and windy weather. Rain earlier this month was not enough to prevent the fire watch. Department of Conservation and Recreation Chief Fire Warden Dave Salino says some areas got two inches of rain or more. But once that system moved out dry air and warm temperatures moved in. We've had very low humidities with some drying winds and warmer temperatures, and that combination has rendered these fuels, the leaf litter, even the larger dead material on the ground to be super dry. Salino says in the last week there have been brush fires that have spread rapidly. He believes some of the fires are fueled by trees and brush killed off from last year's drought. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Secretary of State Bill Galvin is warning that the Boston City Council must approve new voting districts quickly or else this year's elections could be delayed. The council is weighing three different maps. A federal judge threw out the previously approved one earlier this month. The council has until the end of this month to approve a new map. Otherwise, the dates for September's preliminary elections may need to be pushed back. 
This week, a tradition continues for the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company is staging a special matinee series for middle and high school students. WBUR Solon Kelleher reports that this year's performance is Romeo and Juliet. School buses line up outside the Strand Theater in Dorchester late one morning for a field trip matinee. Ninth grader Megan Chisholm says seeing the performance on stage gave her a new perspective on the text that she had studied in class. I think it was a completely different experience than from in the classroom, but it was also very interesting to have such a large environment and have such a big audience being captivated by the play and to have all those emotions shared with more than just like 20 kids or so. For many in the audience, it was their first time seeing Shakespeare performed live on stage. By the end of its run on Friday, nearly 3,000 students will have seen this production. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Next Generation, a showcase of student talent and new work by Boston Ballet Principal Kristen Fentroy at Citizens Bank Opera House this Friday, bostonballet.org, and Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. Tonight at the Garden, it's Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Celtics and the Miami Heat. The Red Sox topped the Seattle Mariners 9-4 last night at Fenway. The teams will play the rubber match of their three-game series tonight. A cloudy start but becoming sunny today. It'll be near 60. Clear overnight and cold. It'll be in the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 60s. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston at 8.08. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. In a few minutes, we're going to hear different views on how to deal with childhood obesity. But first... President Biden met again with top congressional leaders to find a compromise to raise the nation's debt limit. The clock is ticking. In 15 days, the country may run out of money to pay its bills, something Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warns could cause a recession. It is essential that Congress act as soon as possible. In my assessment, and that of economists across the board, a U.S. default would generate an economic and financial catastrophe. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. Uh, Did they get any closer to a possible deal? You know, potentially, both Republican and Democratic leaders sounded more positive last night, even though they didn't really have any breakthrough in terms of what a compromise could end up looking like. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who's been really critical of the process leading up to yesterday's meeting, did shift his tone, which was not the case after the two sides met last week. I did think this one was a little more productive. We're a long way apart, but what changed in this meeting was the president has now selected two people from his administration to directly negotiate with us. McCarthy said he thought it was possible to get a deal by the end of this week. He says that's the time frame needed to get a bill approved through both the House and the Senate before June 1st. That's the date Yellen says the U.S. will hit its debt ceiling. McCarthy has tasked his team to meet with the White House team, these two new negotiators who are leading the talks, but he continues to say he doesn't support any short-term deal to avoid a default. 
There have been previous deals in times of divided government that could serve as a model this time, but getting something done in roughly two weeks is really a tall order. Now, I know President Biden is supposed to go to Japan for the G7 economic summit. He's still going, right, but uh, not the whole trip. Right. He has to cut his trip short because of these talks. He was scheduled to be overseas for eight days, but he's now planning to return early on Sunday, and he's skipping his planned visit to Australia. The president said he would come back for what he called the final negotiations, but he also said they have a lot of work to do. Now, what about Democratic leaders? What are they saying about the talks? You know, they're also calling a Tuesday session productive. Both Democratic leaders repeatedly declined to get into any kind of details about, about what they could or could not accept. But Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer stressed a couple of areas of agreement. Everyone agreed that default would be the worst outcome, a horrible situation for America and America's families. But we also agreed that we need to pass a bipartisan bill with bipartisan support in both chambers. So, Deirdre, what would a possible deal look like? We have some outlines, but there's still really a lot of major issues they haven't decided, like how long to lift the debt ceiling for. Republicans want to raise it into sometime into next year. Democrats want to do it way past the 2024 election. And President Biden noted Republicans are still opposed to any kinds of tax increases in this deal, even though they're still pushing for these spending cuts. But the leaders and the president are talking about these spending caps for some period of time. They do seem to appear that they will agree to claw back roughly $60 billion in unspent COVID relief money. There's also some agreement about possibly including a provision that would expedite permits for new energy projects. One big sticking point still in these talks is the Republicans push to add new work requirements for adults without dependents who have uh, who are enrolled in federal safety uh, net programs like food stamps. The president had expressed some openness to that, but many progressives I talked to yesterday in the Capitol said it insisted it was just a non-starter. There's some tricky decisions facing both the president and the speaker. Uh, so we'll just see what they can agree to that can get past the House and the Senate. Deirdre Walsh is NPR's congressional correspondent. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. The journalist Tom Shanker spent decades covering American wars and national security. He wrote for The New York Times. Now he's stepped away and he tells our co-host Steve Inskeep that he's thinking about threats in the not-too-distant future. There's a lot of very scary things out there. And for 20 years, we make the case that this government focused on counterterrorism, Zoom-like focus. And for those 20 years, we ignored lots of rising threats. And they are now upon us. And we are really unprepared. The system's unprepared. The public's unprepared. We haven't thought about some of these things. Shanker co-authored a book with Andrew Hohen called Age of Danger. It's a catalog of threats that might keep people up at night if only they knew. He says national security professionals warn about diseases designed to destroy American crops. They think about low-lying naval bases that may be underwater in a few decades thanks to climate change. They think about ways to counter the advanced weaponry of China. Shanker does not advocate a bigger military budget to counter these threats, but he does argue the government needs to make smarter use of the resources it has. He says a prime example is the dangers of computers run by artificial intelligence. Most of the public discussion of AI so far has been about, will it write my kids' homework? That's bad. Will it put law clerks out of a job? That's bad. Will it tell me to break up with my dog? That's bad. Will it compose symphonies? Uh, I don't know if they're good symphonies. 
So those are real world problems, Steve. But when you get into the national security space, it gets very, very scary what AI can do in autonomous weaponry that operates without a human in the kill chain. When you say autonomous weaponry, what do we mean? Like a tank with no person that drives itself, finds its own target and shoots it? It's already happening out there now. There's a military axiom that says speed kills. If you see first, if you assess first, if you decide first, if you act first, you have an incredible advantage. And this is already part of American military hardware, like the Patriot anti-missile batteries that we've given to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Incoming missiles, you really don't have time for a human to get his iPad out and work out trajectories and all that. So they're programmed to respond without a human doing very much. It's called eyes on, hands off. Does a human still... Pull the trigger or press the button in that case. Certainly can. Absolutely. Absolutely. But sometimes if all of the data coming in indicates truly it's an adversary missile, it will respond. And here's where it gets scary. As weapons get faster, like hypersonics, when they can attack at network speed, like cyber attacks, humans simply cannot be involved in that. So you have to program, you have to put your best human intellectual power into these machines and hope that they respond accordingly. But as we know in the real world, humans make mistake. Hospitals get blown up, innocents get killed. How do we prevent that human error from going into a program that allows a machine to defend us at network speed far faster than a human can? I'm thinking about the way the United States and Russia, or in another context, perhaps the United States and China, have their militaries aimed at each other and prepared to respond proportionally to each other. In a worst-case scenario, a nuclear attack might be answered by a nuclear attack. Is it possible that through these incredibly fast computers, we could get into a cycle where our computers are shooting at each other and escalating a war within minutes or seconds. That's not where we are now, but that, of course, is the concern not only of real-world strategists, but of uh, screenplay writers like Dr. Strangelove, those sorts of things. I was going to ask you if you had seen Dr. Strangelove. Clearly you should, you you ask me how many times I've seen Dr. Strangelove. Let's describe, I don't think we're giving away too much, the machine that turns out to be the big reveal in Dr. Strangelove. What is the doomsday machine? Well, the Kremlin leader has ordered a machine created that if the Soviet Union is ever attacked then the entire Soviet arsenal would be unleashed on the adversary. And in some ways, you can make the case that is a deterrent, because no matter who attacks with one missile or a thousand, the response will be overwhelming. Because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process, which rules out human meddling, the doomsday machine is terrifying. It's simple to understand and completely credible. And convincing. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, Dainty. But the joke of the movie is they were going to announce it on the Soviet leader's birthday the following week so the world doesn't know that this deterrent system is set up and basically Armageddon is assured. What's going to happen is there's going to be a random attack. And the machine will respond as programmed by humans. And the challenge today is right now, most of the missiles fly over the pole. And we have pretty good warning time. But as the Chinese in particular experiment with hypersonic weapons, we might not have the warning time and there might someday be an argument to design systems that would respond autonomously to such a sneak hypersonic attack. When I think about the historic connections between the Pentagon, defense contractors, and Silicon Valley, and all the computing power that's in Silicon Valley, I would like to imagine that the United States is on top of this problem. 
Are they on top of this problem? Some of the best minds are on top of it. And Andy Hohen and I spoke to a number of people in the private sector, number of people in the public sector and government, and they really are aware of the problem. They're asking questions like, how do we design artificial intelligence that has limits, that understands the laws of war, that understands the rules of retaliation, that won't assign itself a mission that the humans don't like. But even people like Eric Schmidt, you know, the founder of Google, who's spending a lot of time and money in this exact space, spoke to us on the record. He's extremely worried about these questions. It seems to me there are two interrelated problems. One is that an adversary like China gets ahead of the United States and can defeat the United States. But the other is that some effort by the United States gets out of control and we destroy ourselves. That is a concern, and that can be your next screenplay. And, and the problem is you're raising a problem, Steve, that nobody has an answer for. I mean, how does one design AI with real intelligence and compassion and rationality? Because at the end of the day, it's just ones and zeros. Tom Shanker is co-author of the new book, Age of Danger. Thanks so much. It was an honor to be here, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for being with WBUR on this Wednesday morning. Coming up in a couple of minutes, some parents say new obesity treatments for their kids are dramatically improving children's lives. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. How to cover a former president who tried to overthrow an election and is now a candidate again. Media critic Dan Frumkin says CNN's recent town hall is not the way to do it. It was a totally predictable disaster. We thought the media had learned a lesson. You just don't give them an open mic. In post-January 6th America, how should the media report on the Trump candidacy now? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. On today's episode of our podcast, The Common, part two of our dive into the state's cannabis industry. It brings in billions in revenue, but it still isn't helping communities negatively affected by the war on drugs, as state lawmakers had hoped. Join host Daryl C. Murphy as we look into the industry's equity efforts. Check out The Common wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly sunny today with a high near 60. We'll also have some gusty winds. Tonight, clear skies and a low around 38. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 62. Temperatures will rise back up to near 70 on Friday. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the Nature Conservancy, 
partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm e. Martinez. Children today can get treatments for obesity that their parents didn't have. New medications such as Wagovi that tamp down hunger and shift metabolism. Also, adolescent bariatric surgery, which can do the same. Both are included in the American Academy of Pediatrics treatment guidelines for adolescents. It's an acknowledgement of the growing threat of childhood obesity, but it also raises tricky questions for parents. As part of our Living Better series, NPR's Yuki Noguchi talked to parents who are trying to navigate the complex choices of whether, when, and how to treat their child. Let's talk about two moms. Jen McClellan, a childbirth educator for plus-size women with a son in Albuquerque, and Grace, an engineer and mother of four in Bethesda, Maryland. They've never met, but they share similar childhood trauma. Both came of age in the 1980s and 90s, feeling shame over their obesity. Doctor after doctor admonished them to restrict calories and exercise more. Since then, scientific understanding of obesity has transformed. It's now considered a disease driven by genetics, the brain, and myriad other factors. And studies have confirmed what both women suspected all along. Diets often lead to cycling weight. Here's Jen McClellan. It is trauma because we've seen what has happened to ourselves. All I'd ever known was dieting and the harm I had done to my body. Same with Grace. We're using only her middle name to protect her daughter's privacy. Once, Grace subsisted on only water for 30 days, no food, still worked out, and lost minimal weight. Doctors didn't believe her. They said, you need to stop eating so many cookies. And I said, I don't even eat cookies. And they said, oh, so you're lying. Both women felt gaslit and overlooked by doctors who mistakenly viewed obesity as a personal failing or lack of will. Both now have 12-year-olds and solemnly vowed to find healthier paths for their kids. But when it comes to treating obesity in children, the women have very divergent views. Grace fought to get her middle schooler on new obesity medication. No pediatric obesity specialists were available, so she enlisted help from a medical researcher who diagnosed her daughter with a rare genetic condition it turned out Grace also has. She then battled insurance to pay for the costly drugs. Now, for the past year, every morning, her daughter's gotten a refrigerated shot in the arm. That's trimming weight. And, her mother says, just knowing obesity is a treatable disease and not her fault has lifted the girl's spirits. I think that will enable her to grow into a much more healthy person all around, psychologically, socially. Grace also wanted to intervene before ailments tied to obesity, like diabetes, joint or liver problems, developed. She hopes the new guidelines will make it easier for other families to get treatment and insurance coverage, because otherwise it's thousands of dollars a month out of pocket. I feel validated. I'm really hopeful for her that she can avoid all of the problems that I had with my weight and struggled my entire life. Jen McClellan sees it differently. She says today's advanced treatments sound familiar and dangerous. She doesn't trust the new drugs endorsed by the medical establishment won't later prove as harmful as others she's been prescribed in the past. Medications that would make me feel like I was on speed and on drugs. And the minute I got off of them, I just gained everything back plus. 
Are we saying that our children will need to be on this medication for the rest of their lives? She says adolescent bariatric surgery, which the Pediatrics Association endorsed in 2019, also sounds extreme. To say at 13 we should be doing this for children is horrifying to me. Grace and Jen represent two parents, among many others, grappling with the implications of treating childhood obesity. The topic is extremely touchy, fraught with stigma and sensitivities, and with no easy or risk-free solution. Their dilemma is more challenging because obesity medicine is still relatively new and evolving. There's no data, for example, on long-term effects of the medications recently approved for adolescents. Bariatric surgery's track record in teens is longer and proven effective, but carries some risk of complication, malnutrition, and weight regain. Anyway, neither is a quick fix. Both are expensive and require serious commitment to big lifestyle changes in nutrition and activity in order to work. But foregoing treatment, or watchful waiting as previous pediatric guidelines advised, is leading to potentially lethal medical situations. Some of these kids are really having very serious complications that are life-limiting that are happening to them right now. Sarah Hampel is a pediatrician with Children's Mercy in Kansas City and co-authored the new guidelines. We need to take more urgent action. Treatment, she says, doesn't just prevent or improve physical disease. I think the emotional health aspects are incredibly important. Because stigma is cruel and pervasive. Larger kids are often bullied, then face related mental health problems. There, too, parents must consider how that should figure into treatment. Jen McClellan, the Albuquerque mom, argues parents should model acceptance of different body sizes instead of trying to conform to a smaller ideal. We shouldn't be changing their bodies because of bullying so they fit a mold that is acceptable by society. But Grace says she couldn't bear the thought of her daughter reliving her childhood anguish. Like, I just remember all of that sadness and isolation. And, you know, I wish I could go back in time and help that kid. So when her daughter asked Grace to help with her body weight, Grace understood and took action. And she says the struggle to get treatment has paid off. She has more friends, she's doing better in school, and she's really expressing herself and her uniqueness and her individuality a lot more. I think it's also given her a lot of empathy for people who are different. These decisions are tough and highly personal, she says, but she's grateful to have options. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. This is NPR News. You're starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in about five minutes on Morning Edition, we have a preview as a federal appeals court in New Orleans hears arguments today over access to a commonly used abortion pill. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Visit mazes and brain games and challenge the relationship between the mind and eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. Tickets at MOS.org. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. 
where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The White House says President Biden will cut short his upcoming overseas trip amid ongoing negotiations with Republicans in Congress to raise the debt ceiling. The president met with congressional leaders for about an hour yesterday, saying afterwards he remains optimistic a deal will get done. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre speaking to MSNBC. The conversation that he's been having with them is saying, hey, this is a critical moment. You all have to really come together and really deal with the debt limit. The president leaves today for a G7 summit in Japan. He's canceling stops in Australia and Papua New Guinea and will return to the U.S. on Sunday. Kentucky's attorney general will face Governor Andy Bashir in the state's gubernatorial election in November. NPR's Giles Snyder reports on some of yesterday's primary results in the U.S. Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron is the state's first black major party nominee for governor. He won the Republican primary and will face the popular Democratic incumbent Andy Bashir in November. Republicans suffered a setback in Jacksonville, Florida. The city is set to get a Democratic mayor. And in Philadelphia, Democrat Sherelle Parker seems on track to become the city's first woman mayor. Democrat Heather Boyd won yesterday's special election in Pennsylvania's State House. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Dominic Pengalo will become the next mayor of Salem. He won yesterday's special election with 52 percent of the vote. Pengalo served as chief of staff to former Mayor Kim Driscoll. She resigned to become lieutenant governor. Pengalo could be sworn in as soon as next week. Workers at the UMass Memorial Medical Center are finally getting paid more than a year after they lost wages in a data breach. That breach in December of 2021 froze hospital payroll systems. It affected more than 3,000 people. Court documents reviewed by the Telegram and Gazette show UMass and its payroll management company settled a lawsuit over the breach for $1.2 million. The school denies any wrongdoing. Scientists in Cape Cod Bay are looking at whether food can play a role in protecting the endangered North Atlantic right whale. They hope that by following the food, they can follow the whales and use that data to prevent injuries caused by boats and fishing lines. WBUR's Paula Mora explains. Right whales eat copepods, a tiny zooplankton. And those zooplankton eat plant matter that releases a gas called dimethyl sulfite, or DMS. Researchers are measuring DMS levels to try to predict where right whales will go. Dave Wiley is with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He says the information could then be used to implement guidelines. So that can be slowing boats down. That can be rooting them around those areas. That can be um, removing fishing gear from those areas. The researchers still have challenging questions to answer, and they expect to finish the project in the next two or three years. For 9.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. It's 8.33. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. It's Game 1 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals tonight at the Garden. The Celtics will take on the Miami Heat. And the Red Sox beat the Seattle Mariners 9-4 to last night at Fenway. The win snapped Boston's four-game losing streak. The Sox and Mariners will play again tonight. Mostly clear skies today and much cooler with a high only around 60. Tonight, it dips into the 30s. Tomorrow, a high in the low 60s and sunny. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston at 834. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. From Indeed, Committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. The abortion pill, known as Mifepristone or Mifeprex, is at the center of another court case that could end up at the Supreme Court. Today, attorneys are gathering in New Orleans at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to argue a case that could remove this medication from the U.S. market completely. Together with misoprostol, it's a medication that's been used for decades to manage miscarriages and provide abortions. It's now the most common method of abortion across the U.S. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin is here to lay out what this lawsuit is about and what's happening today. Hi, Selena. Hi, morning, Layla. Good morning. Okay, so jog people's memories here. This is a case that started in Texas and was all over the news last month. Yeah, exactly. So it's a case filed originally in a district court in Amarillo, Texas. A conservative group called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine is challenging the FDA's original approval of the medication more than 20 years ago. And early last month, a federal judge named Matthew Kaczmarek agreed with the full argument and would have put a hold on the approval of Mifepristone as the legal case proceeded, which caused a huge reaction, as you might remember. This medication is used for abortion and miscarriages regularly. And for about a week, no one knew if it was about to get pulled off of the shelves. So finally, the Supreme Court intervened and Mifepristone is still available for now. And what happens today? Today, there will be oral arguments in the case. A panel of three judges in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals will hear each side's arguments. Yesterday, I spoke with Eric Baptist, an Alliance Defending Freedom attorney who is challenging FDA's approval process for Mifepristone. We will urge the court to uphold everything that the district court held, that the approval in 2000 for Mifepristone was unlawful for multiple reasons. Those reasons have to do with the procedures the FDA followed and safety issues, he says. I also spoke yesterday with Rabia Mukadam, attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is not part of the lawsuit but supports the Department of Justice's defense of Mifepristone. She says the plaintiffs have put forth junk science to support their arguments. The other aspect of this case that is really preposterous is that none of the plaintiffs have demonstrated that they are actually suffering any harm. So they don't have standing to bring this case. The oral arguments are happening this afternoon in a federal courtroom in New Orleans, and audio from the hearing will be live streamed and open to the public. So any predictions about what's going to happen? 
Well, the Fifth Circuit is known as a conservative court, and this panel of three judges has already shown in their earlier decision last month that they're persuaded by at least some of the challengers' arguments. For instance, they used the term chemical abortion in that ruling, which is an anti-abortion movement term that the plaintiffs used to describe the use of this medication, which is pretty charged language. Mm -hmm. So the pharmaceutical industry and reproductive rights supporters and former FDA officials who all support mifepristone are bracing for a decision that says access should be limited, at least in some way. And this case is about mifepristone everywhere, not just in states that limit abortion. So the stakes are huge. Yeah, the stakes are huge. Could anything change right away? Probably not. The Supreme Court has put a hold on any changes to access to mifepristone for a good long while. OBGYNs say patients are quite confused about this. So this is an important thing to emphasize. Mifepristone remains legal and available right now. Attorneys in this case expect a ruling from these judges in the next few weeks or months. It will almost certainly be appealed to the Supreme Court, which may hear arguments in the fall and issue a decision next spring. But that's all just a guess. Anything can happen. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin, I'm sure you'll be back soon to talk about the continuing legal back and forth on this. Thanks so much. Thank you. The European Union did something recently that could get companies around the world to take more aggressive action on climate change. Other governments, maybe even the one right here in the U.S., could soon follow Europe's lead. Michael Copley joins us from NPR's Climate Desk to tell us about this wonky but potentially useful tool for cutting emissions that are fueling global warming. Michael, so what is it that they're doing over there in Europe? They're doing taxes, eh? So lawmakers have decided to tax some of the things that EU imports, like steel and aluminum, based on how much carbon dioxide companies emit when they're making them. Companies in the EU are already subject to a carbon price. Lawmakers want to make sure that doesn't put them at a disadvantage compared to manufacturers in other places that can emit carbon for free. All right. So can I say it's kind of leveling the playing field? Yeah, I think that's right. They don't want regulations making it too expensive to do business in the EU. The idea is if you put a carbon tax on imports, you take away the incentive EU companies might have to move to places with looser environmental rules. That's important because if companies start leaving the EU, emissions wouldn't really fall. They just shift to other parts of the world and Europe's economy could suffer. All right. So it could protect EU companies and make climate regulations do what they're supposed to do. So how could this encourage maybe companies in other parts of the world to cut emissions? The idea is the fewer emissions you generate in making stuff, the less you'll pay in taxes when you sell to EU customers. So companies might try to clean up their operations to make themselves more attractive. Places like China that burn a lot of coal running their factories could also be persuaded to cut their emissions so their companies aren't boxed out of the EU market. From what I'm hearing, then, it sounds like it could be a big deal if, if it catches on. Yeah, and I think it is a big if. Authorities in the EU won't start collecting these taxes until about 2026, but this looks like a big first step. You know, border taxes on their own aren't a silver bullet for cutting emissions, but it's going to be hard to achieve our climate targets without some way to encourage cleaner manufacturing. And Emily Benson says that's exactly what this could start to do. She works on trade and technology issues at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. By rewarding green commodities with a lower import tariff, it's saying hey, we want your goods, we want to engage in international commerce, we are sending a demand signal to the foreign market to do more of a good thing. Benson says the question now is how countries like the U.S. will respond. So what kinds of conversations are happening here in the U.S.? A lot of people are talking about how a border tax could protect U.S. manufacturers that create less climate pollution than foreign competitors. So advocates like Ben Beachy at the Blue Green Alliance are focusing on those potential economic benefits to try to make this attractive to as many people as possible. Companies may think twice about outsourcing a U.S. factory to a country with weaker standards if they know they're going to have to pay a fee at the border to sell those products back in the United States. Beachy says that could reverse what's sort of been a race to the bottom, where companies move to wherever it's cheapest to manufacture. 
Anyone in Congress talking about this yet? We're seeing lawmakers on both sides of the aisle uh, start to draft plans for what this could look like in the U.S. Democrats tend to come at this from the standpoint of trying to deal with climate change. Republicans seem more interested in protecting U.S. companies and also punishing heavier polluters like China. So we don't quite know what a compromise would look like yet. A concern that I've heard is if a border tax leans too far toward protectionism, it could create more trade tensions and actually hurt efforts to cut emissions. And that's because dealing with a global challenge like climate change seems like it's really going to require collaboration between countries. Michael Copley is from NPR's Climate Desk. Michael, nice to talk to you. Good to talk to you, A. As California's historic snowpack melts, efforts are underway to capture as much of that water as possible in underground aquifers. That story later on All Things Considered. Now to listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or ask for your member station by name. This is NPR News. Coming up at 845, WBUR's Walter Rothman brings us the latest on what's known about Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins's resignation. Much cooler today. Temperatures will only rise to around 60 and it'll be mostly sunny. Tonight, it may fall into the 20s and 30s. Tomorrow, still in the low 60s, but sunny. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Senior Medicare Patrol. Detect, protect, and report health care errors, fraud, and abuse. Be an engaged health care consumer. If you suspect fraud, visit MedicareOutreach.org. Shoppers at Stop and Shop will soon no longer be able to choose between paper and plastic. The Quincy-based grocery chain will eliminate all single-use plastic bags from stores across the Northeast by July. Paper bags will still be available for 10 cents. Stop and Shop says the move is part of an effort to be more environmentally friendly. A Natick-based medical device company is moving its headquarters to Ashland. The Worcester Business Journal reports that precisionary instruments will move into a 12,000-square-foot unit on the eastern edge of town. The company says the building is better suited for its manufacturing and storage needs. Increased prices driven by inflation have more people planning to drink at home instead of at bars and restaurants this summer. That's according to a new survey from Boston-based alcohol delivery company Drizzly. One in four people it surveyed say they plan on drinking at home more in 2023 than they did in 2022. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture committed to utilizing sustainable practices and partnering with local artisanal craftspeople in sourcing their furniture. CircleFurniture.com And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW.
This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins, is resigning. She's been the subject of a months-long ethics investigation by the Department of Justice. This is an unfolding story, and WBOR's Walter Wuthman is here with the latest. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Rupa. So what do we know right now about why Rollins is stepping down? So the Department of Justice's Inspector General opened up an investigation after Rollins went to a Democratic fundraiser in Andover last summer and met with First Lady Jill Biden. Federal employees aren't supposed to engage in partisan political activities under a law called the Hatch Act. Rollins said last summer she had, quote, approval to meet the First Lady and that she left early. The Associated Press reports that investigation has apparently expanded into other areas, like whether she used her personal phone for official business. The report isn't out, but Rollins announced her intention to resign last night through her lawyer, saying her presence has become a distraction. And I believe Rollins has seen that report and hasn't provided a response to the DOJ yet about it, right? That's correct. Okay, so let's take a step back. Rollins has faced scrutiny since President Biden nominated her for this role, right? Definitely. Um, Senate Republicans were really opposed to her nomination. Rollins made national headlines in her previous role as Suffolk County DA for her decision not to prosecute 15 low-level crimes like trespassing and shoplifting. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton said that policy was, quote, pro-criminal. Republicans united to vote against her, so the Senate deadlocked on her nomination. Vice President Kamala Harris had to step in to break the tie twice. Her confirmation was also historic. She's the first black woman ever to serve as U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. She was also a prominent figure in a group of progressive prosecutors across the country, and she's been both celebrated and criticized for that. So this news came out late yesterday afternoon. What's the reaction been? I think people are hesitant to say too much before the report's findings actually come out. And we should say this is really rare for a U.S. attorney to resign under an ethics investigation like this. So I think the news also surprised a lot of people. We got a statement from Senator Ed Markey and Senator Elizabeth Warren. They said Rollins has, quote, for years dedicated herself to the people of Massachusetts and equal justice under the law, and they'd respect her decision. Rollins' attorney said she's optimistic that the important work she started will continue. And while we've yet to hear directly from Rollins, Rollins did address the investigation in December. Here's what she said then. I certainly think um, anytime there's an investigation, Um, into anyone, and I've been the chief law enforcement officer in two different roles, Um, it impacts you, for sure. And for me, my only regret is that this office that has done tremendous work, um, I don't want them distracted by what um, what is happening with respect to me. So what do you think happens next? So there's still a lot of open questions, including the details of what the investigation revealed. There's also a separate investigation by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel into potential Hatch Act violations that could come out as soon as this morning. So we'll be watching for that. Rollins' attorney says she'll be ready to talk after she resigns and the dust settles. As for the office, there may be an interim role here. Biden will need to appoint a new U.S. attorney, which would need Senate approval and would arrive heading into a presidential election. And it also comes as Rollins' office is handling the high-profile case of Jack Teixeira. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman charged with leaking highly classified military documents. That's one of the biggest cases this office has handled in years. WBUR's Walter Rothman, thank you so much for being here so early and keeping us up to date on this. Thank you, Rupa.
halfway through the week with WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us why something called economic coercion will be a crucial subject at the G7 Summit this week. It's essentially bullying on the international level. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. About a third of teens say they use social media constantly, but it turns out the teens themselves are worried, and they have great advice on how to get unhooked. Before I go to bed, when I wake up in the morning, when I'm at school, just you get so like involved, keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, like it's like constantly scrolling. Teens Social Media Solutions on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at four on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. President Biden will cut short his trip to Asia to continue debt ceiling talks ahead of the looming June 1st deadline. The fight over the abortion medication Mifepristone heads to federal appeals court today. And U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins will step down by the end of this week amid a Justice Department ethics investigation. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com Upper 50s today and mostly sunny and windy. Tonight's skies stay clear and it falls into the 20s and 30s. Tomorrow, low 60s and sunny. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston at 851. medication companies that shouldn't be mixed, according to regulators. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. The Name Your Price tool provides a range of coverage options. Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore in for David Brancaccio. The Federal Trade Commission is trying to block drug manufacturer Amgen from buying a smaller drug maker. The FTC filed a lawsuit yesterday to block the merger. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer explains why the Biden administration does not want the deal to go through. The issue for the FTC is competition. The agency says if Amgen is allowed to buy Horizon Therapeutics, consumers will suffer. Horizon makes high-priced drugs to treat rare diseases, medications for thyroid eye disease and a type of chronic gout. The FTC says if the merger goes through, Amgen could pressure insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers into favoring the Horizon drugs over competitors by offering them higher rebates on other blockbuster drugs. Amgen says 
it would not try to bundle these medicines together and is still committed to the merger. The FTC has challenged more mergers under the Biden administration, raising antitrust concerns in the technology and healthcare sectors. In a statement, the FTC says what it calls rampant consolidation has given some pharmaceutical giants, quote, a pass to exorbitantly hike prescription drug prices. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down about a tenth of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the one to four tenths percent range with the Dow future up 126 points. The yield on the 10-year treasury is 3.525%. And the IRS is launching a pilot program for people to file their taxes directly and electronically with the government instead of going through a tax prep company. According to a nine-month study from the IRS, most taxpayers want this option. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by BuySide from The Wall Street Journal, an independent commerce site designed to help consumers make smart decisions with their time and money. WSJ.com slash BuySide. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at UiPath.com slash Marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. A few years ago, Lithuania allowed Taiwan to open a representative office in its capital. The office was called the Taiwanese Representative Office and not the Taipei Representative Office. That angered China, which claims Taiwan is its own territory. In retaliation, China halted its imports from Lithuania. This is what the U.S. and allies call economic coercion, basically economic bullying. There have been many examples. Years earlier, when Japanese authorities detained a Chinese ship after a collision, China shut down the exports of rare earth metals to Japan. This type of coercion is a major topic for world leaders at the G7 summit later this week. So we now turn to someone whose job it is to deal with economic coercion, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. Ambassador Tai, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very glad to be here with you. Is there a risk that this kind of activity, this kind of economic bullying could affect U.S. companies, U.S. people? Certainly. I think that um, for the U.S., we're in a slightly different position because we are such a large economy. I think that smaller countries, smaller economies are much more vulnerable to the bullying because they're much more easily, significantly impacted. But even so, you have seen in the past that the Chinese government in Beijing has responded to actions that the United States has taken by, for instance, targeting U.S. agricultural exports to China. So certainly we have experienced our share of punishment, if you will, for things we've done that Beijing has not liked. I mean, China would say, has said, that the U.S. is the one doing the economic coercion, whether it's we, we pushed hard to prevent underwater cables from being built by Chinese companies or, you know, we have these electric vehicle subsidies that angered even our allies. How are we different? Well, we have a very transparent system. And I, I think what I would like to highlight is when we impose economic sanctions like we have on Russia, they are designed to punish the Russians and to induce the Russians to stop their invasion of Ukraine, right? But the distinctions are, first of all, that we are of the view that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a violation of international law and norms. 
and that the measures that we have taken in response are undertaken in, again, a transparent way under a legal framework that is allowed for by international trade and international law rules. For a while, we lived in a world where the WTO could settle these kinds of disputes. And I know the U.S. and Europe and Japan all say they support WTO principles, but right now the WTO is kind of dead. So do we just now live in a world where it's just every country for themselves? I would say that the WTO is not dead. It is very much alive. We are committed to the success of the WTO while recognizing that there are important parts of the WTO that need to be reformed with respect to these forms of economic coercion that we have seen. Because they are not identifiable quite often as a measure that is taken in response to a political action, they are nearly impossible to challenge at the WTO as such. Suddenly, if you're Lithuania, for instance, one day you discover that all of the goods that are coming from your country are just stopped at the border. And uh, when you ask why they're not moving, maybe you get a response like, well, we have concerns about the safety, you need extra inspections. So you'll see that the European Union has actually taken a dispute to the WTO challenging China's refusal to accept imports from Lithuania. But um, that the challenge there is that there's an amorphous measure. There's just a, you know, a de facto action for the EU to complain about. And that is a very difficult case to prove within the WTO system. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You can hear a longer version of our conversation at Marketplace.org. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Thanks for being with Morning Edition this morning on WBUR. Mostly sunny, windy, and only around 60 today. Tonight, clear skies and in the 20s and 30s, so you may want to cover your outside plants tonight. Tomorrow, slightly warmer in the low 60s. It'll be sunny. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty on stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.